Comms Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch, the founder and CEO of Comms Day, and welcome to this episode. Today we'll be taking a look at a fascinating new survey that looks at how the pandemic has impacted on digital media habits and consumption in Australia. And we'll also be uh, holding a sponsored interview with the CEO of Ribbon Communications, Bruce McClelland, who joins us from the United States. But first, we're going to take a look at the week that was with Rowan Pearce, who's the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hi, Graham. Now, um, you wrote this week about a fascinating company that I don't think that many people have heard of called Blue Wireless. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, so they're quite an interesting one. They're uh, purely a wireless WAN specialist. And I was not familiar with them, but they're actually co-founded both in Singapore and Australia. Um, At the same time, they're headquartered in Singapore. They do have offices in Sydney too, and their COO is actually based in Sydney. So although they haven't necessarily had like a high profile in the local market, internationally they actually have quite an impressive client roster, um, uh, I guess including the likes of like Coca-Cola, for example, uh, Nestle is another one. Um, so yeah, and the, the, the story this week was basically that Australia is the home for their first uh, enterprise 5G deployment um, using the Telstra network. Okay, and uh, so they're reselling Telstra, um, but what kind of equipment are they using uh, to, to support their customers? So they, they use CradlePoint. They're, they're essentially a CradlePoint reseller, but they bundle that with a, um, a service from a local telco. Typically in most markets, they'll use multiple carriers. Um, obviously, until now, it's been LTE networks. Um, in this particular case, which was connecting the uh, Nespresso store in Sydney, in the Sydney CBD, um, they use Telstra's 5G network. But I understand... Um, they're actually in the final processes of getting ready to launch on the Optus network as well. I think they're just kind of a, a dot in the I's and crossing the T's on the commercial aspects of that deployment. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so is Enterprise Wireless a space to watch? I mean, obviously we're all familiar with how the MVNO resellers work in, in the consumer space. Usually they offer a discount proposition. Um, but enterprise wireless seems to be a relatively new area for companies such as this to play in. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to see more of these kind of enterprise 5G use cases um, cropping up. I think, obviously, um, recently, as we covered in Comms Day, Optus has started offering its 5G service to, uh, to resellers. Um, so there's that avenue. But I think also there's so much interest in SD-WAN at the moment, and I think we're going to see a lot of people potentially looking at uh, 5G as a primary connection for something like a branch office. And then if you have someone like Blue Wireless who has access to multiple 5G networks, then potentially you could have a 5G failover connection as well as a uh, a 5G cellular primary connection. Okay. Now, you also spoke with the CEO of the data center company NextDC this week, Craig Scroggy. What's the latest with them right now? Yeah, so that was on the back of their full year results. Um, one interesting thing coming out of that conversation was they really seem to be zeroing in on their international expansion plans. So they already have offices in Singapore and Japan. The sense I got from Craig is they're actually looking at a whole range of potential markets in APAC um, to take the data center business into. And I think it's quite interesting because one thing that NextDC is quite proud of is the fact that they do everything in-house. So they actually have this uh, impressive collection of data center IP. So 
from my perspective, it really makes sense that they might want to take that and just use it elsewhere in the region. Although Craig, Craig did also say as well that it's also a response to customer demand. They have customers that are saying, you know, can we use you elsewhere? Now, they uh, reported their financial year results this week. How were they? Yeah, there were, there were strong results, I thought. So their key revenue stream, which is data center services, was up 18% to $201 million, while underlying EBITDA was up 23% to $105 million. And I think the, the thing that Craig really emphasized in our discussion was that you know, data centers, it's a, you need a long-term perspective. And one figure he likes to point to is that um, over the last half decade, NextDC has delivered a compound annual growth rate uh, revenue um, of 28%, and also underlying EBITDA compound annual growth rate of 67%. So I think he's quite proud, and that kind of, I think for him, that kind of validates the long-term perspective of the data center business. Okay, and now I understand they have a um, new proposition in the carbon neutral states for their customers as well. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so on a corporate level, NextDC itself has actually been carbon neutral uh, for quite a while. And obviously, you know, um, when building their data centers, there's a big emphasis on, you know, minimizing power use, uh, maximizing energy efficiency. But at the moment, they're just working on the final touches, I understand, to launch a new offering for their customers, which will allow their customers to offset the, um, the carbon emissions from their power consumption in uh, NextDC facilities. So it's going to be launched this financial year. Um, just in, in Craig's words, they're just working on uh, productizing it at the moment. Thanks for joining us today, Rowan. Cheers. We're continuing our look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, who's the chief editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Um, you had a great story in Friday's Comms Day uh, about Verizon, and uh, they're challenging what's probably the biggest orthodoxy in telecoms today, and that is that MPLS is dead and the SD-WAN is the natural replacement. They think differently. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, discussion I had with Helen Wong at Verizon, Graham. Uh, they've just recently won a big contract with Bio, and as part of it, uh, for the first time ever, uh, the multinational is actually going to be looking at rolling out some SD-WAN. So we were talking about what the differences are in using MPLS versus SD-WAN, and she mentioned to me, and this uh, chimes with what Telstra said at their recent results, that essentially a lot of the bigger corporates are actually looking for more um, connectivity uh, using MPLS now because of it's got less packet loss and it's better for real-time traffic. So still for mission-critical traffic, it is actually going to be here for quite a while to come despite the growth of SD-WAN. Uh, that, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we get told that everything is about cloud, about internet, that that's what you've got to be on these days, that, that that's sort of the, the central medium for all communications in the enterprise space. But, you know, sometimes the old stuff works better, doesn't it? Very much so. And if you recall, looking back in uh, good old telecom land, uh, both ATM and Frame Relay were all supplanted eventually by MPLS, as it were, 
But the interesting thing that we're seeing this time is the fact that you're almost getting with the bigger corporates that they still need to keep that quality of service for certain parts of their network. And by all means, you're seeing a lot of them rolling off um, non-critical traffic off to SD-WAN, and that's proving really effective as a, as a strategy. Now, um, there's a new acronym popping up in this space. <laughs> I've seen it around the traps over the last few weeks, and it finally made its debut in Comms Day uh, on Friday. Sassy. Can you tell us what it stands for and what it's all about? Yes, absolutely. So uh, SASE, which is Secure Access Service Edge, uh, was effectively a term uh, coined by Gartner two years ago. And uh, as you know, uh, the vendors latch onto these terms and it's become its own little uh, area, if you like. But the key thing about it, what it's trying to actually describe is that if you imagine in a modern network, you have multiple users distributed all over the place using multiple devices, and all of their apps and uh, versus enterprise apps, cloud apps, and so on are very distributed as well. So instead of having your traditional perimeter around the enterprise network and how you normally secure that through a firewall, you end up having to have this distributed security model, and this is what uh, SASE is, essentially. Okay. Um, now, you had another interesting story this week about the NBN onboarding process, and in particular, the issues that one small RSP is having getting a direct connection to the NBN. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this, this was an interesting one. Uh, a, a little internet provider called LeapTel uh, came to us to say that a few small providers were actually having difficulty about uh, scaling their business. They get to a particular point where they've been using what they call uh, an aggregator, uh, but they want to actually connect directly to an MBN point of interconnect. They're obviously not big enough to connect to all of MBNs. So uh, when they've been approaching MBN, they're having to go through this three-part test and uh, they seem to be failing it on uh, commercial terms, so they're not even getting to the starting blocks to actually start this process. Okay, so how does the aggregation model work right now? Is that how small RSPs generally connect to the MBN? It, it very much is. So uh, if you look, if you're not big enough, um, you will use an aggregator to, uh, who actually have uh, multiple interconnects to MBN's 121 uh, points of interconnect. And uh, if they don't have the scale, you'll find that the small retailers will always use this as a model uh, to actually do that. And this has effectively created a sub-wholesale market. Okay. Um, now, what does MBN have to say about these, uh, these complaints? So uh, MBN uh, did get back to us and suggest that uh, they have a number of uh, models for the smaller guys to get onto uh, a POI connection, essentially around uh, aggregation plus also virtual uh, NNI uh, as well, or a combination thereof. The issue that uh, the small guys are finding is that they're not even getting past this commercial test to actually start this uh, process. So it's an interesting one. And uh, because of that, uh, when they're actually going to this aggregation model, they're finding that they're having to pay more than what they would do if they're actually connecting debt uh, directly to MBN. Okay, that's very interesting. Thanks very much, Simon. Thanks, Graham. Now, 
for our sponsored interview. Uh, we're speaking with Bruce McClelland, who's the CEO of Ribbon Communications, and he joins us from Atlanta. That's right, Graham. Uh, great to be with you today. Yeah, fantastic. Um, first of all, I'd like you to uh, give us a bit of an introduction to Ribbon. Um, our audience may be familiar with some of the, the legacy brands that Ribbon incorporates, such as ECI, GenBand, and Sonus. But maybe not so familiar with uh, the scale of what Ribbon does these days. So can you tell us a little bit about that and also what you're doing here in the Australia and New Zealand markets? Yeah, well, you know, I know uh, the Ribbon name is not necessarily a, a household name today, but we actually support a lot of households around the world. And as you mentioned, um, you know, the Ribbon name actually came into existence uh, about three years ago with the merger of Sonus and GenBand. Uh, which are two companies that were some of the original inventors or innovators around voice over IP technology. And three years ago, those two companies came together and we rebranded the company uh, Ribbon Communications at that point. Um, like many technology companies, uh, you know, Ribbon is made up of a variety of companies that have come together over the years um, and uh, it includes companies like Nortel Networks uh, and some of the uh, product lines that were originally developed in, inside of Nortel. In fact, where I started my career 30-plus uh, years ago. Um, I've now been with Ribbon about six months, joined as the CEO uh, six months ago, uh, having a great time, um, and previously was CEO of a company called Eris, uh, which merged with Comscope last year. And also uh, had a, a big presence in, in Australia, uh, working with Telstra and NBN and Foxtel and, and you know, many of the big names in, in Australia. Um, so, so Ribbon is a public company. Uh, we're listed on the uh, NASDAQ exchange here uh, in the U.S. under RBBN, Ribbon Communications. And um, I have a headquarters based in the Boston area. Uh, but with uh, offices and a presence in Dallas and Raleigh and California, uh, development offices in, in Canada and Ottawa, and a variety of offices around the world. Um, we are a, a global company. About 50% of our business is inside the U.S. today, and the other 50% in up to 140 different countries around the world. Um, we recently completed another acquisition, as you mentioned, of a company called ECI Telecom. And ECI is uh, headquartered in, in Israel um, and uh, has expanded our focus beyond voice over IP into the broader data communications market in fiber optic transmission and uh, switching and IPMPLS and all those types of, of technologies. We're about a Graham. We're about a billion dollar company today, um, enterprise value, um, and uh, you know, interestingly, our largest investor is actually J.P. Morgan. Uh, so it's great to have, you know, a really solid foundation from an investor like, like JP Morgan. Um, we have about 4,000 employees around the world, um, and work with uh, a variety of different customers. Probably 70% of our business today is with carriers and service providers and about 30% with, uh, with a variety of different type of enterprise customers. Okay. So, um, can you tell me a bit more about what you're doing in the Australia and New Zealand market and, uh, I guess also what makes the ANZ market a little different to other global markets? Yeah, so we, uh, we probably have a couple dozen employees, uh, based in the, uh, ANZ market. Um, and 
work with the, the major carriers, both uh, traditional landline uh, telecom providers, as well as the mobile carriers. And, uh, you know, in particular, um, obviously have a strong presence in the traditional landline voice network, uh, as well as with uh, some of the kind of next generation unified communications or collaboration platforms that are uh, really hot these days. So those are, you know, two of our big focus areas. And then with the recent acquisition of, of ECI, we have a, a, a lot of effort going into expanding our presence around fiber optic transmission and, and optical networking uh, in the region as well. Okay, now 5G is obviously the hot technology of the moment. Can you tell me a little bit about what Ribbon is doing in that market? Yeah, it's definitely uh, the hot topic, and uh, it has been a hot topic for a number of years. In fact, I remember going to the Consumer Electronics Show three years ago in uh, in Las Vegas. I hope to make it again someday with the uh, COVID situation hopefully uh, reducing. But, you know, 5G was the hot topic even three years ago at a Consumer Electronics Show, and it continues to gain momentum. In fact, uh, you know, there's really strong momentum in uh, the A&Z market with the uh, expansion and deployment going on there. Um, it's still, uh, you know, a small portion of the, the networks around the world today. But uh, most of our customers are, you know, clearly focused on plans to, you know, either augment their current service offering with more advanced 5G services or go through and, and upgrade the existing infrastructure to support 5G. And, uh, you know, that's a, a common theme around the world. You know, our, our piece of that, our play around that is in a couple of different areas. Uh, clearly it's around the networking portion and connecting, uh, all of the different access networks back into the, the core. But we have a few other initiatives around, uh, voice processing and encoding and those sorts of areas as well. Okay. Now I understand that Ribbon, um, has a strong relationship with Microsoft. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And why that's relevant for telcos? Yeah, you know the um, adoption rate of kind of next generation communication platforms is obviously skyrocketed through the COVID situation. Microsoft and their Skype platform now evolved to their Teams platform is clearly one of the you know the largest with the you know greatest momentum, particularly with uh, with enterprises. And uh, you know, similar to the Zoom session we're on here today. Um, the connectivity from the collaboration platform, kind of the on-net uh, world that we're dialed into, connected through soft clients here, the, con- the connection from that environment back to the traditional PSTN to the voice network is really where Ribbon comes in. You know, our products basically secure that connection. They call it SIP trunking or direct routing, and uh, we provide the technology that provides a secure on-ramp from the collaboration environment back into the normal network. And we think, you know, as the adoption rate of unified communications continues to accelerate and essentially replace the traditional phone network, the traditional PBX environment, uh, the attach rate uh, of that voice connection from a traditional network into these collaboration platforms will continue to increase. So we put a lot of effort into partnering really closely with Microsoft, with Zoom and several others. Uh, in the case of Microsoft, you know, we're a gold certified partner, which basically means, you know, we collaborate very deeply. Uh, we're, uh, you know, connecting on roadmaps. We're training, uh, their, uh, go to market team as well as their channel partners to, uh, to be able to, uh, deploy our technology and, and, uh, make that kind of frictionless and seamless. 
so a lot of effort around that, uh, and uh, you know, we're really excited about the potential, uh, both for the Microsoft deployment and, and our piece of that. Now, finally, uh, what is your partner strategy here in the Australia and New Zealand markets? Yeah, we really have a, a partner-first uh, approach to how we do business, particularly with our, our enterprise customers. Uh, you know, we're really, uh, you know, kind of hand-in-hand with them, helping enable them with state-of-the-art technology, uh, enable them to be able to offer a complete suite of services and not only, you know, reselling product and supporting product, but really enriching the entire service offering and helping them differentiate their offering. Um, and so that's a really important, real element of our strategy. Um, we also, uh, you know, try and work really closely with some global partners that really you know, pull us through into larger uh, network infrastructure deals and, and opportunities uh, to, to leverage their scale and, and uh, you know, value around the technology and, and how we help them differentiate. So channels and partners, really, really important for us, Graham. Okay. Thank you very much, Bruce, for joining us today. My pleasure. Really appreciate the time, Graham. Thank you. Thank you. Deloitte have their latest annual media consumer survey out, and it reveals a raft of information about how Australians changed their media consumption habits as a result of the pandemic. And of course, it's of special interest to the telecom sector, because as has been documented, the combination of both work from home and social restrictions has seen upwards of 30 to 40% increased demand on broadband networks. I'm joined by Deloitte digital media sector leader, Leora Navizi. Welcome, Leora. Thank you. Good to be here. Can you tell us more about this year's survey, how it was conducted, and what the headline takeout was? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a slightly different one um, than what we normally do. We sort of had, realised we had a very unique situation on our hands as everybody locked down earlier this year. Um, so we wanted to take a pulse to just check everybody's behaviour during that time. And I guess, you know, there were some things that we knew would come out as expected. So obviously we were going to wa- be watching more news. Um, we certainly were going to be watching more TV. But what we were kind of interested in was more around this almost bubble of experimentation. So, um, you know, I think in a lot of cases what was happening forced the industry um, to kind of experiment and explore where there probably were some hesitations or preconceptions and all of a sudden um, they really had to be tested. So we were, we were interested in having a look um, at what was happening during that time and what it could tell us about maybe um, some of the experimentation or, or the shift in business models and the shift in audience engagement that we could possibly see down the track um, in terms of an accelerated digital um, take-up. But uh, what you've actually found is that far from there being a new normal, there actually seems to be a bit of a thirst for things returning to the old normal, you know, being able to go back to the cinema or a sporting match. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that has definitely um, come out is, is there's no substitute for live. So, um, you know, whereas normally with a survey we do delve in um, very much into kind of devices um, and different channels that people are engaging with entertainment, the story this year really was around what's traditionally out of home and how they were coming into the home. Um, and although I think, you know, we, we did see a lot of movement there, so things like live streaming, um, we saw a bit of experimentation from um, the movie industry in terms of, of taking things instead of from cinema straight onto VOD. Uh, we certainly saw sport kind of scramble um, when they didn't have any live matches. 
um, to broadcast and, and trying to replace it with kind of older content or alternative content. Uh, but I think what, what's kind of come out resoundingly is there really is no substitute for live, certainly not at the moment. And while the digital channels will, will absolutely go some way to plugging the engagement hole, um, I think Australians love to be entertained um, and it's definitely come out loud and clear that I think they can't wait to go back to whatever the new normal looks like um, and get out there and be entertained in a live setting. And, and another interesting finding, not, not only was there increased interest in watching streamed video, but there was also a clear sign that viewers were still quite loyal to free-to-air TV. Yeah, so um, look, free-to-air TV um, was a massive, massive winner during this period. It's probably not, not really a surprise. So um, around 90% of our respondents said they used it to get news. Um, over two-thirds of that were doing it daily and, you know, about a third were doing it multiple times that day. So I think we saw ourselves... Um, definitely for a while, where press conferences kind of took centre stage. There was a tentpole viewing um, viewing moment in everybody's home, certainly on Sunday nights there for a while. Um, but yeah, look, look, I think it, um, I think free to air for news um, was amazing. I think in terms of subscriptions, when you look at um, the SWOD space, is probably where the TV growth was um, for kind of non news content. Now, in your analysis of uh, how people are consuming streaming since the pandemic started, you've coined um, two very interesting terms, isocryptions and polystreaming. <laughs> Can you elaborate on what you mean by those? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, we, um, we're stuck at home. Um, I think certainly if, if anyone had kids um, the way that we do, we were desperate for entertainment, desperate for entertainment in the home that drove a huge acceleration um, that we saw in terms of streaming video. So we, we've labelled them i-subscriptions. So the subscriptions that we all um, hurriedly signed up to um, when we were hunting for content, hunting for additional content, there, there was a clear winner um, there that we've seen, and that was Disney+, Plus, which is probably not very surprising um, for any of us, again, who have kids and we're looking for um, an additional babysitter and an additional thing um, to pop them in front of. So amongst our respondents, we saw a 37% growth for Disney Plus during that period, which is huge. Um, you know, if you consider Disney came into the market um, in November, so at the time of survey, I think we were about um, six months in from launch. Um, they've got a 22% market share with our respondents. And um, if you look at, I guess, Amazon Prime, um, if you look at Stan, they took two years and three years respectively to hit to hit those rates. So Disney's had a very, very good year. Um, Netflix, look, they're starting from um, a position of a, as a clear market leader. They saw 7% growth, which isn't surprising um, given so many of us have it. So I think that the real story and thing to watch there is how those additional services start to change the landscape. And I guess um, th that's what we mean by polystreaming relationships. So there was I thought if you go back a few years um, when Netflix first entered the market, that the Australian market couldn't really sustain more than two services. I think that's been proven um, completely wrong. I think there's a huge appetite here, and I think that's certainly where we're going to see the growth um, in the years to come. So the question is, I guess, how big can polystreaming relationships be um, and and how many can we handle them really? Um, what's going to make people hang on to them in a world where subscription services really, they're month to month, they're easy to... Um, easy come, easy go, depending on what content you want. So uh, the real battle there will be how many people, how many subscriptions, sorry, can people handle in their polystreaming relationship and what are the subscription services going to do to um, retain those customers and hold on to them? Okay. Um, what should broadband telcos take out of these findings? Uh, 
look, I think it, um, they certainly became um, front and centre, didn't they, when um, all of us have been relying on them for so long. For From an entertainment point of view, I think we've recently seen, in recent years certainly, um, Togotainment is how we like to refer to them. So um, Telstra and Optus certainly have had some fantastic entertainment offerings and I think um, it should be a bit of a look at something like Telstra TV, which plays a fantastic role, Fetch plays a fantastic role in tying those services together. Um, I would say it becomes even more relevant uh, as, as we have those closed streaming relationships and consumers really need to understand kind of what content is where and have a way to access that altogether. So if you look at the way things are going with um, being able to build directly through a telco, uh, I mean, it's a it's still a very much a growing market and playing that kind of aggregator role um, in some ways a moderator role um, is going to become hugely important. So, yeah, I would say it would be very encouraging. It's an encouraging report for telcos. And what about on the sporting side? Because obviously with telcos, you know, Optus for football and so on, um, there's a particular emphasis on sporting content. How has that impacted? Yeah, so sports an interesting one. So, look, um, obviously there was a period where we had um, no sport at all. Um, it was a short period, um, but it was an interesting period. What we found was people turned um, to different forms of content to replace that time. What we didn't see was a huge um, replacement of that time into kind of alternative sporting content. So replays of matches, um, things like esports, um, some of the really big digital audience engagement content that we see overseas from, I guess, leagues such as uh, the EPL um, or the NFL in the US. So uh, what I think kind of came out from that is the huge opportunity that lies ahead. So there's a huge opportunity to have a look at what that adjacent content might be, how it's monetized, how you use it for fan engagement. When you think of um, what telcos have done in the sports space, um, you know, in terms of the apps that are out there, uh, in terms of the rights that they have to additional content, I think telcos are very well positioned to have a look at that opportunity and see what role they can play because obviously it's not just a COVID issue. Um, we've got the sports up and running again, but sports all have an off-season. So, you know, what can be done to keep fans engaged um, and, and let's face it, what can be done to monetize content between seasons when we're not talking about just live content, we're talking about other content that people are after. Okay, finally, um, I was quite interested in the survey question on intended spending patterns after the um, restrictions due to the pandemic are over. Um, I guess it's a little sobering if you're in the digital services business. Yeah, look, it's probably, um, we've obviously just gone um, gone into recession. It's, it's natural that people are going to tighten. I think it goes back to um, where will they tighten. One thing I would say in terms of entertainment in general, one one area that always does well at these times is cinema. Um, I think history tells that story in times of um, depression and recession. People are looking to escape and they're looking for um, a very cost-effective way to be entertained. Cinema's always always done well. Um, if you think about the subscription video services and the price point there, you'd expect that actually they will probably fare pretty well. Um, where, where we might kind of see, see things play out and, and where it becomes interesting really is in those kind of live scenes where, yeah, tickets cost more. Uh, I think we're, we're heading into a period that's going to look very different for the performing arts and music communities. 
with reduced capacities. Um, we don't know yet what that's going to do to kind of experiences and ticket prices and whether we're going to see a lift there. So it's, it's an additional thing that that side of the industry is going to have to face into. Um, and I think it's, it's a part of the industry that's really going to need some support. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us today. No worries. Thank you. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.